I was to say we did it in two, what would come to mind? If someone this morning responded like Murray and Jill said, I did it in two and I've still got the T-shirt. Have you still got the T-shirt, Murray? You still got the T-shirt. I should have. I knew I should have asked you to bring it in, but I thought it'll be packed away somewhere in the back of beyond. So what? What does I did it in two mean? Yeah, there's a few of you here. Hands up, those who are here and did it in two. Look at those hands. You know what I'm talking about, don't don't you? What I'm talking about is the two most amazing days in the life of our church. 146 years there's been continuous Presbyterian worship in Cromwell and these were two days. Let me show you some photos if you can guess what happened. We did it in two. There's the t-shirt. Highlighter orange. You could even get highlighter yellow and highlighter green. We did it in two. In March 2006, the only thing on this site was a large concrete slab. That is on the Thursday evening. Two days later, this building that we're sitting in, with all its structural components, were in place. All of the walls and the doors and the ceiling, and it wasn't, uh, the roof was on. Was it at lock-up stage? I don't think it was, co- was it at lock-up stage? It was. Did I hear that some people had to sleep in here overnight to make sure it wasn't? Oh, yeah, okay, the story grows, doesn't it? I thought they were sleeping here on the concrete floor, but no, they were luxury in the tent outside as a watchman. Yeah, the tabern- he was in the tabernacle. Here's some photos. They did it in two. Let me read from Murray Brown. I was in contact with him in the week, and he sent me this email. We did it in two concept was an initiative of Alan Wilkinson who had some experience of similar projects. Alan was working for ITM and had good contacts with most builders in the area and I managed to get three companies to join the We Did It In Two concept. That's three companies. Basically, they had their own workforce without cost to the church to work for two days, Friday and Saturday, to stand up the wall, the roof frames, and put the roof on. Isn't that amazing? That's why there's three T-shirts, the three companies. And there was church folk that were mixed in with the teams. Murray writes, it was a unique experience and it worked superbly. Anybody recognise that very sprightly young man? Actually, I struggle to find photos of people here. Anyone... Yeah, it's Lindsay. Lindsay's grinning at the back. It's a young Lindsay uh, <coughs> about to strike assertively that poor nail that's minding its own business. There is a video, but I think the, the minister who took the, Alan Misson who took it, boy, did he jump around. It's very hard to see that video because it's all like this. But anyway, a lot of fun, isn't it? And to Murray Brown, who underplays his role here, he did so much, to Alan Wilkinson, project manager, Alan Misson, the minister at the time, and all the volunteers, some here, many here this morning, a big thank you from us who now enjoy this wonderful facility because you did it in two. What a wonderful story. This morning in our series in Exodus, we come to the end and we come to another building project with the same aim but with very, very different materials. This morning we come to the construction of the tabernacle the tent place of worship. 
Five months ago we started this series, so let's just do a very brief trek back. God's people were rescued to worship. Slavery in Egypt was harsh. Slavery was cruel. There was even state-sponsored murder of every Hebrew baby boy. But God heard their cries and he remembered his promises and so he sent Moses to rescue his people. And eventually, and only after ten plagues and calamities fell upon Egypt, did Pharaoh let God's people go. And then they came into the Red Sea and God miraculously parted the Red Sea. And they walked through as if on dry land and then when they were safe, the water came down and drowned Pharaoh's army. And what was the first thing that the Israelites did when they were safe, free, rescued? The first thing they did was they sung God's praises. At some sort of gut level, they knew that they were rescued, not to be their own, not to form their own nation, not to do as they pleased, but they were rescued to honour God and to live lives for him. And this is why Exodus is such a wonderful book for us as a church to spend time in. Because one definition of a Christian, there are others, but one definition of a Christian is that we are rescued to worship. If you're not rescued by God, if you don't have a heart's desire to worship, then I would say you may not be a Christian. I'll say that again. If you are not rescued, If you don't have a heart's desire to worship, then I doubt whether you are a Christ follower. It's that integral to who we are. Christians are not people who just rock up on a Sunday for an hour or two and then live the rest of their lives as they please. That's not what a Christian is. We are rescued to worship. And just like the Israelites, we have so much to learn So much to learn. And so as the Israelites moved from the Red Sea, about six weeks it took them to get to uh, the Mount Sinai, and then a year camped around the mountain, God was teaching them all the time what it was to be a people rescued to worship, including the construction of a tent temple, a tabernacle, a place where they could gather and worship, shoulder to shoulder with people who also wanted to worship. And so in a moment we can get into the construction of this tabernacle but as an important aside an update as it was I just want to tell you about something that I preached on a week or two and then connected to this morning last time I preached in Exodus we looked at the lowest of the low and Moses had been up on the mountain 40 days and God said you better get down there because there's trouble Moses had the two stone tablets with the ten commandments and he goes down the mountain and it comes into view that there was a golden calf that was being worshipped and all sorts of revelry and debauchery was happening. And Moses was so angry, he grabbed those two stone tablets and he smashed them on the ground, the foot of the mountain. And there were consequences, deadly consequences for the Jewish folk. But they made their peace with God. And then we read in Exodus 34.1, The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them, the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Just wondering if there's a little bit of a sting in that tale to Moses. Which you broke, Moses. But anyway, they are made and reconstructed and we'll we'll see how they fit in the tabernacle later in this message. So we come to the construction. They have God's written word in the stone tablets 
Now will they listen to his spoken word because God now gives them two instructions. Will they obey or will they disobey like the golden calf? And the two instructions are summarised in chapter 35 verses from 4 and then 6. These are the two instructions from God. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have taken offering for the Lord, everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen and the list goes on of construction material. So that's the first instruction. Second instruction, verse 10. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. Everything the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its covering and again a lot more detail. So the question is, will they do this? Will they be obedient this time or will they go down the line of the golden calf? We're going to look at these two instructions and as we do, we're going to see two aspects of worship that are very important for us today. So what's the first thing? Well, the first thing that God asks, and this is an act of worship, is for them to give gold and silver. He's asking them to give of their finances, as well as the construction material needed to make the tent temple. Now, you may ask, they're in the middle of the wilderness. Where are they going to get all this gold and silver and all this material to make this tent Well, you may remember on the night that they left Egypt, they escaped from Egypt, that God moved the Egyptians' heart to give the Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, lots of gifts, including gold and jewellery and all sorts of things. In fact, God so moved their hearts, I think when the Egyptians woke up in the morning, they realised they'd been robbed. (laughs) I think they'd given too much away in their minds, and I think that's another reason why Pharaoh was chasing them, because they had taken the wealth of Egypt with them. So that's where they got the wealth or the materials that they could use for the tabernacle. But more important to where they got the material is whether they will obey. So let's see whether they obey or not. And we see this in uh, 36, starting at verse 3. Will they give? And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning, verse 6. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing more because they were already had, what they already had was more than enough to do the work. Isn't this amazing? Not only are they obeying, but they are obeying to excess. They are giving from the heart. They are giving generously. They are giving open-handedly, so much so that Moses had to say, Stop! You're given too much. Imagine the day that I stand before you, good people of Cromwell Presbyterian, and say, stop, you're giving too much money to the church. Our treasurer is like Scrooge McDuck. She is swimming in loads of cash at a big vault. Stop your giving. Maybe, maybe one day. Let's remember our Scottish Presbyterian roots. But isn't it wonderful that God's people's hearts were so moved that they gave and they gave until they had to be restrained? And here we have a bit of a take-home for ourselves. And it's not new, is it? We know that part of our worship is to give, 
God gives to us first many blessings and it is only good and right that we give back to his work of our finances. And so, thank you. Thank you for what you give. The financial system of the church is set up that as few as people as possible know who gives what. So I certainly do not know what anyone in the church gives, but I know that there are people here that are so generous and I want to say thank you. Keep praying for us that we use the money wisely for the kingdom of God and for his glory. So this is the first take home for today that we see very clearly here. God asked the Hebrew people to bring and to give and they gave so generously they had to be restrained. So that's the first instruction, one out of one so far. Will they obey the second instruction? Well, let's refresh our memory. The second instruction is in Exodus 3, Sorry, Exodus 35, verse 10. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle with its tent and its covering. So will they obey this instructions? Well, God uh, gives them the broad picture and then he gives some detail. This is how he wants it to be organised. First of all, he appoints a project manager and assistant, Zael and Oholian. These are the two skilled project managers and assistants. Both of them are skilled, Both of them are creative. Both of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. Exodus 35, we see more of the plan. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezael, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and all kinds of skills. And he has given both him and Oholiab the ability to teach others. He has filled with them skill to do all kinds of work as engravers and designers, embroiderers and blue and purple, scarlet and yarn and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. So he's appointed two people, but not just the two, because verse 1 of 36, so Bazil and Oleb and every skilled person, every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord commanded. So quite precise instructions here. And there's a lot happening in these few verses. So God's plan is to send his spirit upon the project manager and assistants, not only so that they could do the work, so that they could teach others. And then a number of people in the community with skills were to put their hand up. They were to sign up, sign on, to be taught, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then start the construction, start the preparation. And so, were they faithful to the plan? Did they follow through to these very clear instructions? Did they cut corners? Did they start well and peter out? Well, in the next few chapters, 36 to 39, where you get very detailed description of how the tabernacle, how it was all put together, ten times you hear this phrase, just as the Lord commanded. So at various places, as certain tasks were done, the phrase is, just as the Lord commanded. Ten times. In fact, when you come to the end, to the sign-off of the building, as you were, the final inspection, then you hear this. This is uh, the end of chapter 39, verse 42. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. And so Moses blessed them. Moses blessed them. Isn't it amazing? Just as the Lord had commanded, is repeated time again. 
Do you know why? Because the Israelites got it right. They followed God's instructions. They followed God's instructions. They had given of their finances, they had given generously of their time, and now they have the tabernacle ready to be fitted together, their place of worship. God is honoured. And what a joy for Moses, remember? He had not long ago come down the mountain and was so angry with the Israelites that he smashed those two stone tablets, whereas now he is so happy that all he can do is bless the people of God. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? We come to the end of Exodus and the people of God get it right. Well done, finally. And so we have our next take-home. Before we move to the last chapter and the glory of God coming down, we have our last, our second take-home for today. You see, just as the Israelites' giving of their finances had implications for us, so is the giving of their time. Worshipping God involves giving of our time, our skills, our abilities. We don't just worship by sitting in the pews. We worship by serving God with the skills he has given us. We are all given different gifts and skills and it's very clear that a healthy church is not just a church full of pew sitters but a church where everyone does their bit using the gifts and the skills that they have. Thank you again to those who work so hard in the church, who give what they can. Whether it's moving chairs or luxing the church, if we were in the North Island, we would vacuum the church, but we lux the church because we're in Southland, Otago. (laughs) So I've learnt as a North Islander. We lux, we clean, we grab a paintbrush. Thank you for those people that use your time to do that. Thank you for those that help on a Sunday morning, who welcome so well, who serve us cups of tea, Bible reading, play music, using your gifts and your skills. Thank you. You are worshipping God, whether you're at the end of a vacuum cleaner or a guitar. You are worshipping God. Thank you for those that are involved in kids' church and youth and mainly music, prayer groups, those on managers, those on session. You are using your gifts and your time and you are worshipping God. Thank you. Now, due to age and health and personal circumstances, some are very limited in what they can give of both finances and their time. Uh, But we think of the widow in the temple in Jesus' day. You remember the story? Jesus was quietly watching. There was a public receptacle where people would put money in and the Pharisees were making a great show of all the money they were putting in and then a widow came who had only two small copper coins and she dropped them quietly into the receptacle and... Jesus said to his disciples, um, she has given more than everyone else that has given today. And some of us are like that when it comes to our finances, when it comes to the time, ability, because of the circumstances. We only got two copper coins. But that's okay. Because in God's eyes, when we give our two copper coins, no matter how small, he is greatly pleased. And so from these encouragements to worship in our giving and our time, 
we move to the climax of the book of Exodus, chapter 40. And here we see, and and in my mind I imagine it a bit like we did it in two, where on the Thursday night there was the foundation and all the frames were ready to go. In my mind I imagine it a bit like that. All of the the craftsmen have brought together to Moses all of what needs to be put together. And then in chapter 40 we hear that Moses and I'm sure Aaron and, and Aaron's sons and that were helping and they put together the tabernacle. And it was amazing. When it comes to those stone tablets, we read in uh, chapter 40, verse 20, Moses took the tablets of the covenant and the law and placed them in the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover on top of it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shield the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. And if you have a look at that little model and You'll see that there's a, a, you might not see it now, but you can see it afterwards. You'll see there's this wonderfully intricate little wee Ark of the Covenant with the angel's wings and inside there's stone tablets. And finally, so finally, the end of the chapter, the tabernacle, the communal place of worship is erected. But then, then something most amazing, dramatic, surprising, unexpected happens. And we read this in verse 34 of chapter 40. Amazing. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory as a piercing light beyond comprehension descends. And as the beauty of God settles, we're told that even Moses is denied access to God's presence. And we think, well, what's the change? Moses has had access to God's presence. Up on the mountain, failed by a cloud, but still access to God's presence. There was even the time when God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and his glory passed by and Moses saw the back of God. And so why is God barring Moses, even Moses, from his presence? Well, it's because something's missing. Something vital, something game-changing, something life-giving is missing. Even though Moses and God's people have done everything right, they have obeyed from the heart and to the letter. It's not enough. They have obeyed God's word from all their heart and to the letter of the law, and yet it's not enough. It's never enough. It's never enough to please our Heavenly Father, to see him, to gaze upon his splendour and majesty. There's something crucial, key and vital that is not here at the end of Exodus, the climax of the journey of the Israelites. And when we find that key, it's only after we find that key that God's people can dwell safely, securely and at peace in the presence of God. And what's missing is the blood of a lamb. See, there's no blood. There needs to be the innocent life of a lamb that takes our place, the innocent for the guilty, a ransom. Then it needs to be the pure blood of the lamb that washes away our impurity and sets us right with God. See, what's missing, why Moses is barred from the presence of God is because there's no blood. Do you know what the book that follows Exodus in the Bible is? Call it out. Leviticus. You know what Leviticus is all about? (laughs) It's all about the sacrifices. It's all about how the blood 
makes it possible for people to access the presence of God. And so that is what missing. And if you read Leviticus, in some respects, it's a little bit tedious because it goes into the detail of that, but it's worth reading because it just shows us how important the blood is. And in the middle of the book of Leviticus, in the very centre, there's the sacrifice of uh, the Day of Atonement. The day when the high priest, there's only one day that the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and it was the Day of Atonement. Two goats were taken to the bronze altar on the outside and one goat, the high priest, laid his hands on the head of that goat and all of the sins of Israel were put on that goat. And then that goat was led out of the camp, out of the city and left to wander in the wilderness, taking the sins away. One symbol of the Day of Atonement. The other symbol of the Day of Atonement was that the blood of one of the goats was taken in a bowl by the high priest. The only time he could go in the Holy of Holies all year And then he sprinkled the blood of the goat onto the Holy of Holies, onto the Ark of the Covenant. You see, it takes the blood of a sacrifice for us to enter into the presence of God. And where then does this leave us? Where does the book of Exodus leave us? Well, it leaves us looking to the blood that was spilt and the life-giving, not to the annual sacrifice of the Day of Atonement, which was only a partial covering at best. No, Exodus finishes by pointing us to the true and the better sacrifice, to the one that John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The book of Exodus is saying, Even if you obey God with all your heart into the letter of the Lord, you can still not come into my presence unless you come in by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ. And that's where Exodus leads us. It leads us here at the communion table where we come to experience afresh the blood of Jesus that allows us to enter into the presence of God. You see, good people of Cromwell... (laughs) You were rescued to worship. Rescued not to do as you please, but to live a life free to honour God, the living God. And that's what we're going to do now. I'm going to ask the worship group to come and lead us in a song and then we're going to take the body and the blood, the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled to us. And why was the blood spilt? Well, we see it in Exodus. Without the blood, we are barred from the presence, no matter how good we are. But because of the blood, we are adopted as daughters and sons into the lives of the living God. We are welcomed, as we come to the communion table, into the arms of our Heavenly Father. What a privilege it is to be rescued to worship. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the last few months where we've journeyed with the people of Israel through Exodus and we've been with them, Lord, as they've grumbled and we've seen ourselves as we've grumbled and we've seen them when they've fallen short and we're with them, Lord, because we've fallen short. But today we've seen them when they get it right. And Lord, that's our desire. We want to get it right. We want to honour you in all ways that we can. But most of all, Lord, we want to shelter under the blood of Jesus because that's the only way that we can come into your presence. Heavenly Father, as we take the blood, as we take the the body, may we experience Jesus in a fresh way. Through his name we pray.
Amen.